Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. The nation's latest mass shooting. In Indianapolis. An active shooter currently at FedEx. Eight people pronounced deceased here at the scene. 13-year-old boy shot at the hands of an officer. to do things differently. Increases in the daily number of cases. When do Americans get their freedom back? Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome in. Sorry to have to lead with this story. Fox News and another uh, number of media outlets are reporting that shooting in Indianapolis. Police say at least eight people were shot and killed at a FedEx facility near the airport Thursday night. Multiple others injured. Alleged shooter died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. They're now trying to figure out where this guy was from. Uh, His background, at least four people were hospitalized, including one person with critical injuries. Two others were treated at the scene and released. No law enforcement officers were injured. Multiple people with injuries consistent with gunshot wounds, police said during a preliminary news conference. Officers responded to a report of shots fired around 11 o'clock last night. Police say they believe there is no active threat to the community at this time. So it apparently was just a single individual. We'll uh, continue to uh, update you as that uh, story comes out in more detail. Uh, Locally, around 4.30, a Early this morning, East Carolina University police responded to a fire in Tyler Residence Hall. Responding officers found a small fire in a student's room on the fifth floor. The officers put it out. Fire department showed up. Um, They emptied out the building. One police officer was transported to Viden Medical Center for treatment of smoke inhalation. If there's that much smoke, I mean, it was probably a decent-sized fire. Students living in Tyler Residence Hall were evacuated. They'll be relocated to other residence halls. They will be uh, back into the do- the dorm at Tyler Hall around late evening Sunday night, apparently. Uh, interesting news from Mark Robinson. Now, we've been talking about the fact that uh, earlier this week, Pat McCrory decided that he was going to jump into the uh, United States Senate race. And there's been speculation that Mark Robinson would possibly do the same. Late yesterday, Mark Robinson released a video, which uh, is now making the rounds, indicating that he is indeed thinking and praying about running. Now, he just was elected to the lieutenant governor's position last November, and already he is contemplating the possibility of running for the United States Senate. First off, let me say this. Running for Senate is not something that was even on our radar in this office. It's not something that we ever considered. But in recent weeks, uh, we have been approached by many people who have great confidence in us, uh, have great confidence in our ability and our staff and our message, and believe that we are the right people for this job. We also uh, had an opportunity to look at some numbers, poll numbers, and those poll numbers are very favorable uh, to us. Because of that, and because of the importance of this seat, we have decided to take a serious look at this race. And when I say take a look, that is exactly what we are doing. We are sitting down and we are consulting with those that we trust and with our families. And we're, we've been praying to the Father that he give us the right answer on what we should do. And let me, let me be plain with this. My experience so far since 2018 in this 
has been a, a spiritual journey. In 2018, I was well on my way to obtaining the bachelor's degree and then uh, even had some offers out there uh, to teach, which is what I, I wanted to do, is teach at the college level. But God turned me around and had me go a different direction, completely different direction. While I was out speaking all over the country, there were many people that wanted me to do, uh, continue to do that. But again, God turned me around and had me do something completely different, which was run for lieutenant, lieutenant governor. And here I am, uh, winning that seat. And here again, God again has uh, seems to be opening up a door that uh, he either wants me to walk through or explore. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're giving this a look. And the reason why we're giving it a look, I am not doing this to climb anybody's ladder. I would hope that you all have heard me enough and know me enough to know that politics is not an end game for me. The end game for me is to make sure that the freedoms that we have in this country remain. And that I pass on to my grandchildren what our founders passed on to me. That is the goal here, and as such, we feel like the federal government has just gotten out of control. You see what's going on in our federal government. This attempt to pack the court to diminish your Second Amendment rights and continue to push these wild ideas of the left. We've got to stop that somehow. I want to be part of that. Now, that's not to say that we have decided to run, because we have not, but we are exploring that issue. And we're taking a look at it because I want to do whatever it is to be most effective for this state and this nation. To that end, this is what I would like for you all to do. Understand that we have not made a decision, that we are in consultation with people that we trust, and that we are praying on our knees every day for the right answer on what we should do. I want you all to join me in those prayers. And I'd also like to hear your opinions as well. Because, guys, it is because of you that I sit in the lieutenant governor's office now. It's not because uh, of anything else. It's because we, we followed the will of God and the people heard our message and you believed in it and you propelled us to this seat. We want to do what's right for you. This is a great decision. Join me as we make it and help us. Send us your prayers. Send us your thoughts. Send us your ideas. God bless you all, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. That's Mark Robinson, a video he released last night talking about his decision, consideration to run for the U.S. Senate. And again, he's asking for your prayers and your response. I'd encourage you to do both. Uh, I'd say he's got his priorities right as he puts it to prayer. If I was to give him my advice, I would love the idea of Mark Robinson being the next governor of North Carolina. I'd love to see him learn his job as lieutenant governor and uh, take his time and hold hold to his ideology hard. I love what he stands for. I love what he says. I haven't found anything I disagree with him on. Um, And again, he's not saying he is running. He's saying he's considered running, and I take him at his word. But I would really love to see him hang in there as lieutenant governor and be the next governor of North Carolina. I think that would be a great uh, great move. And, of course, and, and the other individual, there's Mark Walker, former congressman. He's announced he's going to run. Ted Budd is sounding like he's going to run. Mark Robinson, possibility. Laura Trump, possibility. And, of course, Pat McCory announced earlier this week he's going to run. Not 24 hours after Pat McCory announced that he was going to run, the accusations have started flying. It's really interesting how, you know, it's the two accusations that progressives, liberals love to throw uh, up against 
conservatives is one that they're racist and two they're sexual predators barely 24 hours after pat mccrory announced his bid for the senate run the mudslinging started this time by alex peterson alex peterson is actually one of the individuals who made an accusation against john weaver the founder of the lincoln project there was about a dozen people that made accusations against uh, John Weaver, and I'm not defending John Weaver here. But the accusation that Alex Peterson has made against Pat McCrory is mudslinging, and it, it's, it's beyond the pale. It's like, how, how do you connect the dots? This guy is accusing Pat McCrory. Uh, the best I can figure it is, is accusing Pat McCrory of a homosexual sexual harassment. <laughs> if you know anything about Pat McCrory, that's that's a, a bridge too far, but he is saying this because Alex Peterson, at one point uh, back in 2016, he was working as a news reporter, was interviewing Pat McCrory, and after the interview, you know, they, they give it's it's similar to a Bluetooth kind of thing. They give you a, a lapel mic. And there is the transmitter, which you put in your pocket. Pat McCrory finishes the interview and starts to walk away. And this Alex Peterson says, whoa, 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 uh, Governor. He said, you've, you've got my microphone. And Pat McCrory turned around, smiled, laughed, and says, oh, I, I thought you'd reach into my pocket and grab it for me. That is now being an accusation from Alex Peterson against Pat McCrory as sexual harassment. I'm not kidding. They are desperate. Matt Gates, they're going after him. And now MSNBC, Jory Reid, has tried to tie the fictitious accusations against Matt, against Matt Gates. She's now trying to bring DeSantis into that and act like, well, he must be guilty because he's knows Matt Gates. Some of the same people that work with Matt Gates have worked with Ron DeSantis, so therefore he must be guilty. These people are—they're uh, they're desperate. That's the good news. They're desperate. I mean, I've said for years, get ready to be called a racist if you're a conservative. Now I guess you need to also get ready to be accused of sexual harassment. The Daily Mail is reporting a father of seven— 43-year-old man has been left paralyzed on one side of his body, unable to talk after receiving the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. This is like the ninth case of a stroke. One woman has died, but the ninth case of a stroke within hours after receiving the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. Now, Granted, the percentages I acknowledge are, are low, but at, at this point, the CDC has said, let's put a hold on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, the story was that the gentleman's na name is Brad Malagari. He is from St. Martin, Mississippi. He went earlier in the day and got the COVID vaccine went back to his office, co-workers found him slumped over on his desk just a few hours after he received the vaccination. They rushed him to the hospital, 
it sounds like he's going to survive, but how much uh, damage has been done? I mean, he, he, he doesn't sound like he's going to lose his life, but there could be permanent uh, issues with this gentleman. Doctors have diagnosed him with a stroke caused by a blood clot in his brain. And again, this is the ninth time a blood clot has been caused so far that we know of from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And, and again, I'm, I understand the percentages are low. But it is interesting how we are being lectured by many that everyone has to get the vaccination. And we do not know what the long ter- long-term effects of this va- these vaccinations are going to be. We do know some short-term effects of the Johnson & Johnson, and that's why there's been a pause on this vaccination. If you're considering getting the vaccination, I'm not saying do or don't. I would say this, though. If it was me and I was going to get the vaccination, I well, you can't get the Johnson & Johnson at this point. But if you could, I think I'd probably pass and go for one of the others. Um, we're going to take a time out. When we come back, Joe Biden has made two nominations, uh, one for commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. The other is um, for Joe Biden's nomination to head the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Both of these are about as bad as you can get. We'll tell you why when we get back. This is your Drive at Five, an ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in. Take a look at your weather forecast. It looks pretty good for the weekend. Tonight, it'll be partly cloudy with low around 44. Saturday, a high near 67 with sunshine. Slight chance of showers tomorrow night. Not a very slight, 20%. Low around 48. Sunday, partly sunny, high near 69. So all in all, a pretty good-looking weekend. Weather brought to you by our friends at University PC Care. They've been Eastern North Carolina's go-to IT experts for quite a while now. Unfortunately, most organizations simply react to IT issues after the damage is done. This is known as the break-fix cycle in the tech services industry. A quick example, you show up to work, you find your computer is down, you submit a repair ticket, a tech shows up, remotes your computer in perhaps, trying to fix it, you're down, losing productivity, perhaps lost files. University PC Care's Business Services Division has a better way, a proactive solution called BizCare. BizCare tech support and cybersecurity plans are always on duty, staying ahead of potential problems keeping you up and running with less downtime and much safer from threats like ransomware. Want to know more? Call William at 394-8572 to schedule a free BizCare consultation or go to universitypccare.com to learn more information. President Joe Biden has made a couple of nominations that are mind-boggling, but again, as, as we talked about yesterday and I talk about on a continual basis. I I really do think part of the plan of the Biden administration. Now, I think uh, Joe is is a puppet for all intents and purposes, but I I do think they want to dismantle our way of life, Western civilization, our constitutional republic. Uh, They want to destroy it so they can introduce their socialist communist 
ideology. The, um, the president has picked to run the border security. He's picked a guy by the name of Chris Magnus. He is the police chief of Tucson, Arizona. He is a, now this is the guy that would be the commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Okay. But he is also a supporter of a pathway to citizenship for illegal immigrants, and he's opposed to the border wall. Um, and the bottom line is border patrol officers are not real keen on this guy. They have written on Facebook in the past, if law enforcement is now free to pick and choose which laws they want to enforce based upon their personal morals and political beliefs, this country is in one hell of a mess. Chris Magnus is an ultra-liberal social engineer who was given a badge and a gun by the city of Tucson. Chris Magnus is dangerous. He is preaching anarchy and encouraging police officers to commit dereliction of duty. He is supposed to staunchly defend the rule of law. He routinely crosses the line between politician, social engineer, liberal activist, and police chief. Magnus faced scrutiny from immigrant rights groups last year after the Tucson Police Department took two months to release body cam video of the death. It was footage of the death of a guy named Carlos Ingram Lopez, 27 years old, who repeatedly had asked for water. According to news reports, Lopez was intoxicated. He was having a mental health crisis and running around the house naked when his grandmother called 911 in April of 2020. Police officers chased Lopez into the garage, handcuffed him, and placed him face down, face down in a position for 12 minutes, according to the Times. An autopsy found that the cause of Lopez's death was cardiac arrest. No charges were brought against the officers who took him into custody, although three resigned. <laughs> yeah. Does that sound surprisingly sim similar? Uh, can you say George Floyd's death? Um, you, you, perhaps you remember this Lopez death. It's, it hadn't been in the news like George Floyd has. Why? Because with this individual, Chris Magnus, at the head of the Tucson Police Department, who is an ultra-lib, it fits right in with a progressive ideology, it wouldn't fit the progressives' narrative. I mean, it doesn't fit their narrative to bring down a guy like Chris Magnus. So you haven't heard much about that story, have you? Uh, this guy, he is going to be going up in front of the United States Senate for confirmation. Magnus said the delay in releasing that video was due to bureaucratic problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which bureaucrat are you referring to, yourself? In a November 5th tweet that likely wouldn't have a bearing on his position at the uh, um, Customs and Border Protection Agency, but expressed a politically charged view, Magnus call, called for Google to ban former Trump White House aide Steve Bannon. In a written testimony to the committee on December the 12th, 2018, Magnus opposed Trump's construction of re and or reinforcement of the wall along the U.S.-Mexican border. He is, uh, he is a proponent of the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
He, he says he's not a political ideologue, but uh, he's a liberal. He's a progressive. He's doing everything he can to help the progressives move forward. Why Tucson would hire this guy as their police chief is mind-boggling. He, he actually, before he got to Tucson, he was out in Richmond, California, where he had, was making national news because they said he was good with race relations because he held up a Black Lives Matter sign. So that's why uh, apparently Tucson said, well, this will be a good hire. Wow. So that is just one of the moves that the Biden administration is making. But that's not the only move. The um, trying to find another story that uh, relates to this. Uh, Let me begin by this. There is um, the nomination to head up the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. The nominee is a woman named Kristen Clark, black female. Kristen Clark is a liberal beyond the pale. Ted Cruz yesterday was uh, going through the confirmation process, and it was his turn to ask questions. He confronted Kristen Clark pretty much head-on concerning a number of things that she did back in the 90s when she was at Harvard. Now, she had written, she had been involved in a a number of um, programs, seminars, and she had written to the Crimson Paper concerning uh, a, a situation called the Bell Curve in which she came out and just made some horrendously racist comments about, uh, I mean, if, if this was in reverse and it was a white individual making the same proposals that she made for the black population, it's talking about how superior they were based upon their race, both physically and mentally. If, if it was a white person doing that same thing in reverse, that, that, that person wouldn't have a shot at being in any administration at any time. But the accusations she made, they were beyond the pale. But uh, anyway, that was, that was part of what Ted Cruz got into with her uh, earlier this week. It's been reported that during law school, you helped organize a conference with speakers who referred to convicted cop killers as political prisoners. This included Mumia Abu-Jabal, who murdered a Philadelphia police officer, and Asanta Shakur, who was convicted of murdering a New Jersey state trooper, escaped from prison, and is on the FBI's most wanted list. Did you organize the conference? And do you support celebrating those who murder police officers as heroes and and political prisoners? Um, That conference you're referring to was organized by the late Dr. Manning Marable, a noted historian who led the Institute for Research in African American Studies. I was a student uh, providing support for the Institute, working on a range of projects 
Uh, to the second question, Senator, no, I do not celebrate the loss of life. So if you say you didn't organize the conference, why did multiple speakers at the conference thank you by name for inviting them to speak at the conference? Because I was a, a hardworking student that uh, made sure people were fed, uh, mailed out invitations, provided the agenda. I was the, a student providing logistical support to a notable historian who was the one who organized that conference. So if there's a police officer in Philadelphia or New Jersey today watching this hearing, how are they supposed to react to your nomination to one of the senior positions of the Department of Justice, knowing that as a student you participated in a conference celebrating and lionizing cop killers who murdered a Philadelphia police officer and a New Jersey state trooper? How, how, how should a cop today watching this react to that news? I have never uh, and would not ever celebrate the loss of life or the killing of a police officer, Senator. Not ever. That is uh, Kristen Clark. Again, she's the nominee to uh, be a part of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice, head up the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. By the way, she was also, remember... What year was it? I guess it was uh, 2008, I think, when uh, the Black Panthers were up at a Philadelphia polling precinct. And uh, they, they were standing there with clubs in their hand, um, cursing and threatening any white voter that would come in and vote. And um, Kristen Clark, and she was asked about this in the hearing this week. She was um, very vocal and outspoken that these two black, uh, it was more than two, but these Black Panthers that were threatening white voters and not allowing them to come in and vote, she was an advocate that these charges against these Black Panthers should be dropped. She really couldn't come up with a uh, rational reason as to uh, this week when she was asked about that, she just simply denied it. The Free Beacon is reporting, after she swore to answer all questions truthfully in an appearance earlier this week before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Joe Biden's nominee to, again, lead the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. And by the way, this is the same position that Clarence Thomas held years ago. There was a series of questions that strained credulity and veered into outright falsehood, writes the Free Beacon. The most bald-faced lie that Kristen Clark offered in her own defense relates to her activism while at Harvard. Pressed about a 1994 letter published in the Harvard Crimson, making the case that blacks are intellectually and physically superior to white, Clark waved it off as satirical. Everybody knows that I was joking, she said, when she wrote that black infants sit, stand, crawl, and walk sooner than whites, and in a demonstration of scholarly rigor, pointed to the work of writer Carol Barnes to assert that human mental processes are controlled by skin color. The letter concluded, it is completely naive to say that blacks have achieved economic equality with whites. It seems that whites have grown tired of hearing about racism, was that a joke, too? 
In Wednesday's hearing, Clark assured lawmakers that contemporaneous reporting by the campus paper made it very clear she harbored no racist views, uh, not even close to being the truth. The editors of the Crimson at the time called her to retract her claims. In an editorial, Clark should retract statements, they wrote. We searched in vain for a hint of irony in Clark's letter. She had, they concluded, resorted to bigotry, pure and simple. And again, this is not coming from some right-wing paper. This is from the Harvard Crimson, hardly a right-wing publication. Five days after the editorial was published, a student columnist wrote, by disseminating racist theories of her own, however ambiguous, Clark has done nothing to refute what she abhors and has done much to poison the atmosphere further. Even her defenders weren't in on the joke. They explained that, Having spoken to Clark, it became, it became clear she meant to question why the racist opinions of white Harvard scholars are publicly debated while racist opinions of black scholars are categorically rejected. And indeed, Clark invited the racist black scholar Tony Martin to Harvard's campus to discuss his book, The Jewish Onslaught, which was purely anti-Semitic. And this is the individual... Look, I'd be honest, I mean, if you want to have these kind of racist opinions, whether you're white or black, uh, no matter how repugnant they might seem, okay, we'll give you the opportunity to express yourself, but you're not going to be the head of the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. Would you put David Duke in that position? Of course you wouldn't. But you're going to put Kristen Clark there? Another prime example of a double standard. We're going to take a time out. We come back. We've got a special guest coming up. I think you're going to be interested. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Back to news and views. Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in. 19 minutes before the top of the hour. Mark Meckler is the CEO and president of the Convention of States Action. He is on the phone with us right now. Mark, uh, welcome to News and Views. Good to have you with us. Good to be with you. So there is a rally planned for next Wednesday up in Raleigh at the uh, Halifax Mall. And I I guess the purpose of the rally, obviously the long-term purpose, is to see if we can get a Convention of States called but the uh, short term uh, is is to see if we can get uh, House Joint Resolution 233 passed. And uh, tell us about the rally and tell us about this resolution. Sure. The resolution is in support of a call for a convention of states. For your listeners who don't know about that, we have the power under Article 5 of the United States Constitution to call a convention of states, get everybody together, and to propose amendments to take power away from the federal government. And, Lord knows, at this point in American history, we need to take power away from the federal government. Thank you. So specifically here in North Carolina, what it means is HJR 233, that's sponsored by Representative Riddell, Representative Bell, Representative Hardister, has 32 co-sponsors in the House. It's a lot of, a lot of support there. That got reported favorably out of the House Judiciary 4 Committee on the 31st of March, and now it's pending a hearing and vote in the Rules Committee. So we expect that any day now, and that's what we're looking for support for. The rally is April 21st. That's 10 to noon at the Capitol and the Halifax Mall. That's in between the legislative office building and the legislature itself. 
Now, where does where do we stand nationally? Uh, North Carolina is obviously one of 50 states. How many states do you need to actually have a call for the Convention of States, and where do we stand right now? It takes 34 states to call. That number specified in the Constitution is two-thirds of the states, so that's 34 today. So far, we have 15 states. We've got a bunch of states sort of in the race to be number 16. Uh, North Carolina is among them. So is this resolution binding? I mean, is this just a saying, hey, if it happens, we're, we're philosophically on, on board with you, or is this actually a, a call uh, to be a part of the call for the Convention of States? Yeah, no state would be required to attend, though I imagine all states would. It's binding in the sense that it is the legislature stating its intent to the United States Congress to get together in convention. It's binding in the sense that once we get to that number 34, the convention is called. But if a state chose not to attend or at any point in the future decided they didn't think it was a good idea, they can rescind these the same way they passed them. Now, my understanding is if you have a call for a convention of states, it would be to specifically deal with certain issues. It wouldn't be a free-for-all. Uh, you'd, you'd, you'd come into the Convention of States with some bullet points of, okay, we're going to limit uh, what our business is going to refer to, to to these particular items. Am I correct on that? And, and does this joint resolution describe that? Yeah, you are correct. And, and the joint resolution describes it very specifically, every state passing the same resolution. The resolution calls for discussion around three subject matter areas. First is to discuss anything that would involve imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government. That would be things like a balanced budget amendment, taxation and spending caps, uh, forcing the government to account according to generally accepted accounting principles. All of those would fall under fiscal restraints on the federal government. Second is anything that would impose term limits on federal officials. When we think of that, we generally think of Congress, and that's available. But that would also include staffers and bureaucrats. This is the unaccountable deep state as we've come to know it, and so I think we need term limits on those folks also. And then finally is anything that would limit the scope and the power and the jurisdiction of the federal government, meaning getting them back to the enumerated powers under the Constitution, taking, for example, their power away over education or energy or health care or the environment. These are all things the federal government was never meant to be involved in. They have usurped that authority, and we need to take away from them and bring it back to North Carolinians. Are you limited by a, a certain period of time that you have to have these 34 states to sign on before you're saying, okay, well, now we got to start over again. No, the good news is there's no time limit. So as long as it takes you to get to 34, obviously sooner, better than later, we see what's going on now in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. seems to be spiraling out of control worse every day and needs our yeah. limits more than ever. So we'd like to get there sooner rather than later, but there's actually no official time limit on how long it takes you to call the convention. How, when did you start this process? When, when did the first state sign on? Uh, we started in fall of 2013, and the first state signed on in 2014, so about seven years since the first state signed on. It's a long, arduous process, and that was the intent of the founders. Do, do you um, have, have you, well, first of all, have you had any states that signed on now saying we're going to back out? No, we've had no rescissions. I mean, we've had some sort of uh, crazy fringe groups on the far left say that they want us to rescind or they wanted legislatures to rescind. Nothing that's ever gained traction. And the main reason is this is so weird by the American people. Roughly 80% of the American people are in favor of term limits, about the same number of balanced budget. 72% say that the federal government's too big and does too much. 
And we've got so many grassroots activists all over the country. For example, right there in North Carolina, almost 71,000 people have signed the petition in support of that, 70,812 to be exact, 5 million supporters nationally in wow. every single state and congressional district in the United States of America. We're talking to Mark Meckler. He's the CEO and president of the Convention of States. Uh, there is a rally that's going to take place next Wednesday. Uh, again, this rally is to encourage our state legislature to pass this uh, Convention of States resolution. Uh, tell us a little bit more specifically about next Wednesday's rally. Yeah, look, to me, this is one of the most important things we can do just generally, which is to go to the Capitol and to personally lobby our state legislators. So what will happen at the rally is from 10 to noon at the Capitol. It's in between the legislature and the legislative office building, what's called the Halifax Mall. That's at 300 North Salisbury Street. And what happens is I'll speak probably Representative Riddell, Representative John Bell, Representative John Hardister. These are guys in the leadership in the legislature. They'll speak in support. And there'll probably be others who speak as well. Grassroots activists will come out and speak. We're expecting at least two to 300 people there. And then this is the most important part. We'll send folks in to lobby their own legislators. And this is the most important thing you can do as a citizen. Where we have the most power is in our state legislatures. It's important that more and more people get comfortable going down there, talking to their legislators about the things that are important to them. We'll coach people on how to do that. It's easy. It's not intimidating. It's actually really fun, and I'll be doing that with folks between 10 and 12. I would think you'd have to be somewhat encouraged, Mark. I mean, it seems like we're seeing more and more conservative state legislatures across the country. Is momentum going in favor of this convention of states? Uh, it really is. I'll tell you, it's, it's almost overwhelming for us as an organization because so many people are pouring in. Two weekends ago, I had an issue over the weekend. Our tech team called me up. They were panicked. They thought something was broken in our broken in our system because we had literally over 10,000 people sign up for the organization in one weekend. Wow! So there's an overwhelming amount of people who realize there's a system in Washington D.C. that's broken. We're going to have to do something about it. So we see a lot of momentum all around the country. Now, let me ask you a, a, a question that uh, you might not have an answer for, but. Right now, we are ruled by the Constitution. I mean, that is the, the law of the land, Lex Rex. But yet we've got an administration and a number of bureaucrats and a number of representatives in Washington, D.C. that are basically shooting the bird at the Constitution. What's to, what's to keep, if, if you have the Convention of States and you pass, the, you know, you, you, you pass these um, reaffirmations to our Constitution, which is basically what, it, what we're talking about here, What's to force administrations like the Biden administration from actually following through on what the Convention of States would pass? What kind of leverage do you all have? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, there's sort of two points to answer that question. First is, and conservatives might, this might be aghast when I say this, but mostly they follow the Constitution, those in the, in the federal legislature hmm. and the courts. And it's really interesting, and here's what I mean by that. We all think of the Constitution as that beautiful document in the National Archives or a pocket Constitution you carry around, but the Supreme Court has essentially been amending the Constitution by fiat ever since the inception. Now there's actually a document you can order from the federal government. It's called the United States Constitution. It contains every case ever issued by the United States Supreme Court telling us what that beautiful, simple document means. The book that you can order from, from the U.S. government, according to which they operate now, is 2,738 pages. With supplements, it's over 3,000 pages now. 
And the federal government largely operates within the bounds of that. Unfortunately, the courts have expanded the bounds for the federal government dramatically. What we do know from knowing history, we have 27 amendments, and what happens is the government follows them when we pass those amendments, generally for roughly 100 years till they start to drift. And the reason for that is political muscle is required to pass an amendment. It takes 38 states to ratify. That's a super, super majority, three-quarters of the states. And so what it means is the vast majority of American people are in support of whatever it is that is added as an amendment. And what happens is politicians, I hate to say this generally, there are exceptions, but they're not the most spineless people. They look at the way the wind is blowing, and when you have an active <laughs> political muscle like that by the vast majority of the American public, the politicians tend to follow it. And that's our history with all of our amendments. We're out of time, but real quickly, do you have a uh, website folks can go to if they want more information on this rally for next Wednesday? Absolutely. Go to conventionofstates.com, click on the uh, submit a petition and petition your legislator, and then join us at the rally. We'd love to have you there. Mark Meckler. Thanks for calling in, Mark. Look forward to it next Wednesday. Thank you. God bless. Okay. Stay with us. I'll be right back.